This morning's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Indumia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and, to, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Good morning. How are you all? It's good to be here with you all this morning. Thank you for being flexible and working with us. And I just think about um, the memories we'll have of this season of our church's life together. Um, I know that sometimes meeting in different locations isn't ideal, but it will be memorable and it will shape us and give us character as a body of believers. So, and what a beautiful morning it is. A little windy, but um, overall, nobody's, nobody's sweating. Nobody's getting third degree sunburns. So we're thankful for that. Um, I'll go ahead and pray for us. And uh, we'll get to work on Mark chapter 3, 7 through 19. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace to us. Thank you for the sunshine upon us. Thank you even for the breeze, the wind. Lord, we pray, God, that you would quiet our hearts and still us now so that we would hear your word preached to us. Thank you, Lord God, for the word that's already been impressed upon our hearts through song through Matt's devotion. Lord God, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, help us to see just our great need for corporate worship. Lord, impress upon us the glory of Christ and may the weight of the glory of Christ land upon our hearts this morning. Lord, we need that. Awaken us, Lord God, from the deadness of sin. Awaken us, Lord God, from indifference, Lord God, that is caused by just being in this world, Lord, we wonder, where is the glory of God? Where is the praise of God on the lips of mankind? Because it is so absent, sometimes, Lord, the temptation for us is to follow suit. But you are glorious, and it is all around us. Your sunshine, the blue skies, your creation all exclaims that God is glorious. It attests to the fact that you are the maker and the creator. Lord, I echo Craig's prayer earlier. On July 4th, we remember our country. And we pray, Lord God, that you would bless us. We pray for our country. I pray that you would help Christians and the church to understand, Lord, our role when it comes to building an earthly kingdom and building a heavenly kingdom. And while we are focused on the heavenly kingdom and while we are focused, Lord God, on the kingdom that Jesus is establishing and, esta and has established by the blood of his cross. Lord, we still live in the United States of America. We are still citizens here. So help us, Lord God, to know how to balance our responsibility in an earthly way and our responsibility ultimately in a heavenly way. We lift up our president. We lift up Joe Biden. We lift up Kamala Harris. We lift up Governor Tim Walls and so many more 
of those politicians that have been elected and ultimately appointed to office by you. Father, we pray for them and we ask God that they would fear your holy name, Lord, and that they would govern, Lord God, in the fear of God. That they would turn away from evil, Lord God, and embrace righteousness and truth. And Lord, I pray, God, that they would know the truth and that the truth would set them free. I pray for freedom for them, Lord. If they don't have it, I pray that they would have freedom that Matt talked about and described that can only be found in the blood of Christ. So we ask God for our leaders, for our politicians, and Lord, I pray that your church would have a humble heart, even when we don't agree with our politicians, which is almost an inevitable thing, Lord. We will ultimately disagree with those who are in charge or charged over us. When we don't agree with them, Lord, give us wisdom and give us grace, Lord God, to love our enemies, Lord God, to lay our lives down and remember that we are building a heavenly kingdom that cannot be thwarted. Lord, give us grace in that. We need your help. Father, be with us now as we open up your word. Show us how to read your word. Show us how to make observations in the text. Show us, Lord God, what you mean to say to your people, your disciples, Lord, as we follow you in this world. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty and matchless name and all God's people said, Amen. <clears throat> Okay, so discipleship. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about discipleship and what it is. And I'm going to say very simply, discipleship is about being and it's about being sent. Discipleship is about being and it's about being sent. It's about being in relationship with Jesus. And it's about what one does as a result of that relationship as you are in relationship with Christ. Discipleship is about being with Jesus. It's about speaking his message. It's about acting in his name by casting out demons. And perhaps if you haven't casted out many demons lately, perhaps more applicable to us, it's about opposing evil in this world. So discipleship is about being with Christ. It's about speaking his message. It's about opposing evil in this world. And maybe at face value, these two paragraphs, as you look at them, don't say a whole lot. Perhaps if you're in your daily Bible reading plan, you would read through this and say, yeah, okay, and then move on. And that's kind of how I entered it too. And when I entered my study, I started to realize there's actually quite a bit there to glean and to, to, um, to, to hear as God speaks. And one of the things I think that Mark does is he puts his thing together in a, such a way. And perhaps the way he piles paragraph after paragraph, he does so intentionally to communicate some things. And when we look at the first paragraph, chapter, or I'm sorry, verses 7 through 12, and then when we look at the second paragraph, verses 13 through 19, there's a number of different contrasts. I think that we could probably draw from those two things. And when, by looking at the contrasts, we can start to gain a sense of what Mark is communicating and how he positions those two paragraphs together. So let's draw out some of the contrasts that he points to. And then by so doing, we can grasp the identity of what it means to be a disciple. And that's my desire for us this morning that you would come into a deeper understanding of your identity as a disciple. What is the identity of a disciple? And then to encourage you to self-assess and to hold yourself up, the reality of who you are, the reality of what you're doing in your life, and hold that up against what the Bible says is true of discipleship and true of the disciple of Christ. And I hope that we can do that individually. I hope that we can do that corporately. And then also to kind of gain a sense here of how he moves forward. We just kind of came out of a section where Jesus deals with the opposition of um, the Pharisees and the scribes. Now there's a bit of an attention shift to the followers of Christ. How do the followers of Christ look and how do they respond to Jesus? So we can kind of hold ourselves up against that. That's my goal here this morning. So that we would look at the reality of who we are, 
as individuals, and only you can do that, and then we kind of look at that corporately as well, so that we can more fully embrace our role as disciples and grow in, in Christ and in his mission as well. Okay, so let's look at discipleship as well, being with Jesus, and I'm going to make a couple of points about this. I'll, I'll, I'll break this down into three subsections. Discipleship is about being with Jesus. Um, Jesus calls his disciples. I want to say some things about this. In the first paragraph, Jesus gives his attention to the multitudes of people. And in the second, you notice he finds a quiet place where he turns his attention to 12, only 12. So here in the first, it's a public place. In the second, there's a private place. In the first, there's multitudes. In the second, there's just a few. And by the way, this number 12 is symbolic. And I wish I could go more into this. This would be good subject matter for a Bible study. But you notice the number 12. I think it's symbolic, highlighting the way that the Old Testament people of God, how many tribes were there again? What was that number? 12. There's 12 tribes. There's 12 disciples, which indicates the carrying on of the kingdom of God in the person and the work of Christ. So there's, there's importance to that number 12 there as well. Notice that in the first paragraph, Jesus doesn't want to be made known. And in the second paragraph, interestingly, he organizes his disciples and he sets them up so that they would go out and preach. Why would they preach why would he send them out to preach other than to be known? So he doesn't want to be known. Now he wants to be known. How do we make sense of that? I think that's a valid question. I think a good, good reader of Scripture. In fact, this week as I was uh, preparing this, I gave my kids an assignment. I wrote the text on a piece of paper and I said, make 12 observations of the contrast between these two 12. You know, 12. There's 12 disciples, so why not make 12 observations? And they did a pretty good job with it, and um, they, they actually recognized this. They recognized in the first paragraph, Jesus is asking not to be made known. In the second paragraph, they're noticing he's sending them out to preach about the kingdom of God, to make them known. <laughs> what do we, how do we draw uh, anything out of that, and how do we make sense of that? Well, perhaps what we could say is that Jesus cares about how he is known. He cares about what is known about him. He cares about the way that he is made known, and therefore he cares how he is known. What you know about Jesus matters to Christ. It does. It matters to Christ. In the first episode, we see menacing crowds pressing into him. And actually, this is life-threatening. I don't know if you've heard stories. I think about one of the first things that entered my mind was a, a story about a, a, a soccer game. I think it was in the 80s and, um, in England. And one of the turnstiles at one of the ends of the arenas was broken. So a bunch of people went in through this other turnstile and they, as a result, there was more people than normal filtering into this general seating section behind this, the goal. And nobody had any ill intentions of creating chaos. But what wound up happening as an effect is so many people started pressing in and pressing in and pressing in to this section. The people at the front were literally crushed to death. And you can, you can see... In this situation, Jesus is in fear of his life. There's actually a concern about, the, about his life. And, and, and really, if you really stop to give this some thought, you can realize that um, this is a chaotic situation. <laughs> this is chaotic. I mean, there, nobody's trying to harm Christ, but the situation was such that so many people with ailments and physical um, issues yeah, just got pelted by a by a pine needle. I'm going to have to dodge up here. <laughs> We've got our own version of chaos going on here. But, but if you stop and really think about this, this situation is actually chaotic. I mean, Christ is there, and so many people are pressing, and nobody means ill intention. Nobody wants to harm anybody. But Jesus actually recognizes this is a life-threatening situation here because the crowds are piling up, and there's pressure boil, uh, pressing into him. And he realizes, hey, you know what? <laughs> we got we to gotta take some precautions here. So gain a sense for the situation and what it actually is. And, um, and, uh, and if you really look at it, 
back to my point earlier, Jesus cares about how he is known. And maybe one of the reasons why he suggests, or one of the reasons why he, he instructs and commands, don't make me known, is because he doesn't want to be known in this way. He doesn't want to be known um, as a circus show. He doesn't want to be known as a miracle worker, perhaps. And the contrast between the crowds who came to Jesus for healing and the 12 disciples whom Jesus goes and calls is something that we need to pay attention to. Because that's what Jesus actually says. If you notice in verse 13, he says, He called to him those whom he desired. Do you see that there? Verse 13. We can say that true discipleship begins with the call of Jesus. The Bible makes it clear that God chooses you without God taking the first step towards you, you would never truly seek after God, at least not for the right reasons. I know what I'm saying here is fairly controversial because it gets into this doctrine of election. And we see the doctrine of election kind of spelled out in scripture in a number of different ways. And I think it's illustrated here to some extent. This is what Psalm 14, two and three says. Notice this, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Are there any who seek after God? They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. What does Psalm 14 tell us? It tells us there is none who seek after God. None. Nobody seeks after God, at least not in the right, with the right motives and the right intentions. And you might say, well, there's a huge crowd. Jesus is going from town to town. Last last week he had the he had US Bank Stadium totally sold out. Not a ticket could be had. How do you make sense of this idea that none seek after God? How do you explain that? Well, I guess I could say that there's a difference between coming to Christ as a miracle worker and coming to Christ as savior. You know, the world is comfortable The world is comfortable with viewing Jesus as a miracle worker. The world is comfortable with viewing Jesus as a good moral teacher. The world is comfortable with looking at Jesus as a life enhancement plan. The world is comfortable with looking at Jesus as a friend, as your homeboy. But you know what the world is not comfortable with? They're not comfortable with embracing Christ as Savior, as the Lord of the universe. Because to do so... To embrace Christ as Savior, as Lord, you have to admit, I'm a sinner. And you have to admit, I'm worse than I actually thought I would ever be. And I'm more helpless in solving any one of my problems than I ever would want to admit. To come to Christ as Savior, what the Bible says, nobody does that. Nobody comes to Christ as Savior. Nobody seeks him. Only God seeks you. It is by the good pleasure of God, by his design, by his initiative, that he goes to you and he, and he helps you to see that you're a sinner. He helps you to see that you have no hope of salvation outside of him. Without Christ doing this and without God taking the initiative, none of us would be saved here. None of us would wake up and just say, oh, you know what? I, you know what I think my problem is? I think I've turned away from the living God. I think I'm rebellious in my heart to the core of my being. And I think there's no hope for me other than Christ and his precious blood. Nobody, the Bible says, nobody comes to that conclusion on their own. It is Jesus who goes to them. It is Jesus who goes to his people and he makes disciples. So yes, there are huge crowds that follow him, but it's also, he says, he called to them, to him, those whom he desired. And mankind, what we can say about this too, in addition, mankind is very good at softening the blow of their sin. They're very good at minimizing the effects and the consequences in their dire situation. They're really good at that. That's part of what it means to be a sinner. This is part of what it means to have the diagnosis of sinner. I'm really good. I am really good. And you are really good. All of you, all of us are really good by nature. Even as Christians, you're really good at looking at your problems and looking at your sin and saying, ah, yeah, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. All of us are really overestimated. We're tend- we have the tendency to overestimate our ability to get out of the jams that we're in. 
many of us, perhaps some of you right now to this second, you guys have, you're dealing with sin and you think you're overestimating your ability to get out of it. You think that, ah, oh, it's not so bad. I'll stop it when I really need to. No, you probably won't. And the reality is we need Christ to come into our life. You need, you need fellowship with other believers. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But I, I would submit to you again, this is the reason why humankind doesn't come to Jesus as Savior naturally. We're really good at minimizing our sin. We're really good at overestimating our own abilities to get ourselves out of the jam that we're in and underestimating how dire our situation actually really is without Christ. So when Jesus calls those whom he desired, it stands in contrast to the way mankind thinks about Jesus. See, Jesus might be a miracle worker, a moral teacher, a life enhancer, but this is not the way that Jesus wants to be known. He does not want to be known as a miracle worker. He doesn't want to be known as a life enhancer. He doesn't want to be known as a moral teacher. How does he want to be known? He wants to be known as the Savior and the Lord of heaven and earth. This is how Christ desires to be made known. And if you are his disciples today, it is on the basis of Christ choosing you. <laughs> That's an amazing, humbling reality. Oh, may we come to, humble, uh, to, to, to be humbled by the reality that you did not choose God. God chose you. He reached down into your life. He reached down into your pit that was completely covered with darkness with no hope of escape. And he pulled you out and he transferred you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous light. That is the work of God in your life. And if you are a disciple of Christ today, it's because that work of salvation, that miracle has been done in you. And that should humble us greatly. And like Matt said, it should give us a great sense of freedom. Now I am free from my sins. I'm free to fight against my sins. I am free to worship the God whom I'm created to worship. I'm not enslaved by sin anymore. I'm free to worship. I'm free to run towards him. Okay, let me talk a little bit about discipleship in the new creation. Discipleship in the new creation. Now this episode lead, leads us back to creation. And here's how I see that. One of the most obvious ways that this episode leads us back to creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and he guesses, we see Jesus naming his disciples. What did Adam, Adam and Eve do again? What did Adam do? He named the animals. God put them in charge. And by the way, he appoints these apostles. And I just want to clarify this. I'm talking about discipleship. These apostles represent disciples that would follow Christ. Every consequent disciple that would follow Christ. So these apostles are representative of all of the, of the, the, of the disciples that would soon follow after Christ. Adam is the one who gives name to all the animals. And when he did so, you see, he was demonstrating the authority that God had granted him over the earth. He was on commission with God. One of the ways that God had authority and Adam joined him in that authority and exercised that authority on God's behalf, he gave names to the animals. When you name somebody, you demonstrate authority over them. And in the first paragraph... Um, you see this contrast again. At the end of the first paragraph, what do we see? We see Satan trying to name Jesus. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I talked about this? We saw this in chapter 1. When Satan goes to Jesus and says, I know who you are. You're the Son of God. Satan isn't bowing down and worshiping Christ at this point. He is right. He is the Son of God. But what Satan is actually trying to do in that moment is he's trying to exercise authority over Jesus. He's trying to say, ha, I've named you now. Now you're mine because I've named you. I'm, a, I'm an authority over you. This is the scheming of the devil. And we see there is no benevolence, not even a shred of benevolence, of love, of respect that Satan has for Jesus. So we see this as a contrast at the end of the first chapter or first uh, paragraph. Satan is trying to name Jesus and bring him under his authority. But in action, reality, Jesus is the one who stands in authority over all. And in the second paragraph, we see Jesus is the one who's naming. Jesus is the real namer. He's the one who exercises authority. He's the only one who truly has authority. 
he names he names his disciples and exercises authority over them and the greek word here for appoint you see that in verse 13 where jesus appoints his disciples it should really read make so in other words it should probably maybe a more literal translation is jesus makes disciples as in he literally brings them into existence much like genesis 1 where god makes the heavens and the earth he creates he brings into existence something that didn't exist now it exists this earth that we stand on this grass these trees this sky well at one point it didn't exist and all of a sudden it did exist and this is true with discipleship too at one point these disciples they didn't exist and all of a sudden, God, Jesus, makes them. He brings them into existence. He creates. Do you see this? This connection to creation. Um, so every single disciple within this creation or this community that has been made, you are now a new creation. There's creation. There's new creation or recreation. If you are a disciple of Christ, it's because Christ has made you he has brought you into existence as a disciple isn't that amazing he has brought you into existence at one point you did not exist as a child of god at one point the saved version of you was not in existence and now you are in existence because christ has created christ has made you and um and by the sovereign will and by the sovereign decree of the almighty god and this connection, we could say, is, uh, of creation is supported in the work of Peter. If we could look at Peter, the Apostle Peter, for just a second. Look at the word, uh, uh, his name. It starts off, his name is Simon. Jesus renames him to Peter. And many of you guys know what the name Peter actually means. Rock. Um, and Jesus, he decides, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. Now, here's what's interesting about this, and this is something that we can glean about discipleship, is that really, if you look at Peter at this point in his life, he is anything but a rock. <laughs> I mean, I think, what was it? There was a junior high girl. She was selling Thin Mints, and he got scared away. I don't know the guy. Oh, you're one of him, aren't you? You're one of his followers, aren't you? No, no, I don't know. He denied Jesus three times. He was scared away by this by this young gal and I don't I don't I don't I think some translations say she was selling thin mints but uh, <laughs> but don't quote me on that I, I wouldn't press that too much Peter was scared away how could you name this guy the rock if you knew Jesus or Peter at this point you would say that's, that's not a rock you know what here here's here's one of the realities of discipleship Discipleship is not about you trying to create yourself or to make something of yourself. It is about what God envisions in you and what God is creating in you. And that's a good lesson for us to learn. When you think about, so maybe one of the applications, don't think about yourself too much. Don't think about your limitations too much. Think more about what Christ is able to do in you and through you and what he intends to do in you and through you. But in addition to that, discipleship does demand that you surrender your life to Christ as the total authority over you. He is, it's not about you discovering your self-discovery. It's about discovering what Jesus intends to do with you to fulfill his mission and to serve his kingdom. And that's the way we think about ourselves. And really, if you think about this, just give this some thought. You might think, well, that sounds that sounds amazingly close-minded, and that sounds amazingly, um, what's the word? The opposite of freedom, almost enslaving. I have to be totally surrendered, and I have to allow this Jesus to decide what my future is. And really, if you think about it, I mean, that, that, that kind of smacks against our American sensibilities, where we love the self-made person, right? But if you really think, give this some thought, are you really free to do whatever you want to do? Really? I mean, if you really stop and think about it, all of us are in some measure of, of journey of self-discovering who I am. And whether you like it or not, you have resources that are 
woven into the depths of your being. I think of this as like the Iron Range. You ever, you ever hear of the Iron Range up there north of Minnesota? You drill into the earth and what do you find? You find iron ore, ore. You find rock. And guess what? That's what, no, those are the resources God put in there. And can the Iron Range, even if it desired, even if it really intended to become um, an oil mining plant, could it ever mine oil? No, it could not. But you know what it really is good at? It's good at producing steel. It's good at producing rock that gets turned into iron and steel. And that's kind of how you are. You know, there might be a number of different things that you could succeed at as a person. There might be a number of different career paths that you might be able to take. But here's the reality. There's a whole lot more that you never could be able to take because you just don't have the skills. You don't have the resources for them. And no matter how much you wanted to be an NFL quarterback, I don't think there's anybody here who would ever, ever be an NFL quarterback or whatever it might be. So really the self-made idea this illusion of freedom, I think it's just an illusion. The reality is every single person is limited. And at some point, every single person, when they find their niche in life, they would say something along the lines of, I'm doing what I'm created to do. Do you realize that? Do you realize that every single person, even if they are an atheist, would have to come to grips with the reality that they were made for certain things and they were not made for other things? So the fact that you would become a disciple and totally surrender yourself to Christ and discover what he has intended for you to put, for him to put you to work in his kingdom, doing his purposes, actually sounds pretty freeing. Okay, number three, discipleship is relational. It says, they came to him and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. Now, before Jesus calls you to anything, he, he calls you to be with him in relationship. You see, discipleship isn't about doing something. It's about knowing someone. It is a who before it is a what. I find it interesting that Jesus calls 12 to know him in the context of knowing each other. And this is important for us to think about. So knowing one another is a means of further knowing Christ. Discipleship is relational, not just between you and Christ, not just between you and God, your maker, but it's also relational in the fact that we are in a community with one another. And the way that you interact with one another is actually a means by which Jesus designed for you to know him better. So knowing one another is a means of further knowing Christ. Now pay attention to the community that Jesus builds and that he inaugurates in the church because the church is unlike any other. If you notice this, um, he chose 12 and the 12 were Jews. They were Gentiles. Um, the 12 were also uh, fishermen. They were tax collectors. Do you notice this? They have no point of earthly unity. And here's the reality of of what it means to be a part of the church, to be a, it's created, brought into existence, child of God. Now you're in the church of Jesus Christ. It means that your point of unity is not your socioeconomic status. It's not what your interests are. It shouldn't be anyway. It ultimately, your point of interest or your point of unity with one another should be the call of Christ upon your life. And what we see here is that call when really, when you start to think about it, that call is actually so important. It is so big. It transcends anything else. It really should. The, the, the reality that you are called by Christ should, should be able to overcome any difference that you have on a kind of a horizontal earthly level. And, um, and, and there should be no difference that you might have with another person that really cannot be overcome by the unity that you share in Christ and in his mission. And, 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 and that's one of the things that makes the church beautiful is that we can have old people, young people. We can have very able people. We can have disabled people. We can have everything in between, all, all with our point of unity in Christ, fellowshipping together. And the reality is if we have fellowship with Christ, if we have fellowship as an individual with Christ, uh, theoretically, and, and, and this should happen, we, there, should, there should be no reason why we wouldn't be able to have fellowship with any other person. And when we consider the relational nature of discipleship, um, it teaches us that we can never make it 
without the community of the church. Do you realize that? We can never actually make it in this life. We can never thrive. We might be able to survive to some extent, but you can never thrive without the community of the church. You can never thrive without the community of one another. This community that is bound and, and, and tied together in the unity of Christ, in knowing Christ and in his call, you can never make it without, without the fellowship and without the, the community uh, spurring you on. And remember when I said that mankind is really good at softening the blow of their sin until Jesus enters into their lives and calls them to, unto himself? Well, I think that as churchgoers, I think that we're still pretty good at thinking that we can do it on our own. So I'm convinced that without real community, it is very natural, it's very easy for us to drift into sin and then naturally have your ways of softening it or have it, having your ways of softening it. You convince yourself that it isn't that bad, maybe that you can reverse it when you really absolutely need to, but in reality, you cannot. You need relationships in your lives and you, know, you don't just need any old relationships. Mark this. Just getting together to hang out. Okay, that's great and all. But what I'm suggesting here is that you don't just need any old relationships. You actually need co community of the church that Jesus created in your life. You need that kind of community in your life. You need people in your life who will exercise the authority of Christ on his behalf to carry out the work of his salvation for you. You need people in your life who are pressing into you, who understand you who really know your propensities, who really know what you're dealing with. What are, uh, okay, what are your tendencies? Where do you struggle? Where do you struggle to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So I would, I would recommend to you that you need community, that you cannot, you cannot thrive without this community. So perhaps this is a call, this is a call to really assess where, where is your community at? And, and, and what have you done? It's, it's very easy to, to say, well, uh, you know what? It's, you know, right now it would be easy to say, well, the church kind of is going, undergoing, you know, trauma. My community has been ripped apart. And I get that. And I'm, I, I'm grieved by that to, to you know, I'm, I'm grieved by that. But where are you responsible for that? Where are you really good at guarding? Where are you really good at putting up walls and not letting people in? and not really disclosing where you're really at. I would recommend that most likely where community is deficient in your life is owing to the ways that you have put up walls and you have not been willing to do gospel life with one another. So consider that. All right. Discipleship is about being sent. Discipleship is about being sent. They came to him and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and they might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Now, if we say that the first order of discipleship is knowing Jesus, we can say that the second order of it is to make him known, to make Christ known. And perhaps we can say there's two aspects to this making known. We can say communicating his message, which he says sending him out to preach, and then standing against evil. When he says, when he says having authority to cast out demons. So making known his message as you make disciples and then standing against evil. How are you making known the message of Christ? How are you standing against evil? Those are things that you can ask personally and those are things that we can ask corporately of ourselves. Um, Jesus makes disciples and then he sends out his disciples to go and make disciples. And much like God granted Adam and Eve to exercise authority over his creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God inviting his people to share in his authority over the new creation in Christ. Now, do you realize this? That as you, if you are a disciple of Christ, you are called to make disciples, which means you are called, much like Adam was called, to exercise God's authority on his behalf, you are called to exercise the authority of Christ by making disciples. You join with Jesus in exercising his authority and making disciples. That's an amazing privilege. That's an amazing responsibility. Except as we make disciples, we're not, we're not naming animals. All right, that's, that's, what, that's what Adam was doing. We're not, we're not naming animals. 
you might find that fun. I'm, I'm sure looking out here, I know we have a lot of pet lovers. You might enjoy naming animals, but you have a, you have a bigger task than that in Christ. You are leading people to become conformed into the image of Christ. You see, when we think about sin, have you ever thought about it this way, that sin is at its core relational? Sin is relational, and I think we should think about it in these terms. When we have sinned, when anybody sins, it is substituting the true God for a false God. It's actually, it's a personal attack on the character and the nature of God. And you are an image bearer of God. And now as a result, as you have preferred false idols instead of the living God, that's relational. You're saying no to God. God always puts sin in relational terms. He calls sinners in James 4 adulterers. Adultery is a relational infraction. When he calls us an, an adulterer for the way that we substitute the living God for a false God, that is relational in nature. Do you see that? And as a consequence of this sin, the image of God in you is now distorted. So really, if you look at the core of what it means to be a disciple or what it means to, to become a disciple, it is that being with Jesus, now that becomes really relevant. Because as you are with Jesus, um, it is a way of forsaking human idols and allowing the image of God to be formed in you. You, as an image bearer of God or as a disciple of Christ, you realize that when you are with Jesus, you come to know him more. The image of Jesus himself is being formed in you. You are being transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. That is very personal. It's very intimate, too. So as Christ and his image gets formed into you, (laughs) this is really amazing. You now become a vessel by which other people are conformed to the image of Christ as well. Your goal in discipleship ultimately is to be with Jesus in such a way that his image is formed into you. And now as you spend time with other people, the image of Christ is now, because of you, formed into them even just a little bit more as well. You see how it's relational between you and God and between you and other people? It's a a very relational. It's incredibly intimate. And this is the way that we participate in exercising the authority that Christ has. It's it's, it's intimate. It's, it's, It's relational at its core. So the disciples of Christ participate in his authority in such a personal way. They know Christ, and as they know Christ in his image of God is being recovered in them, God does his work to perfect his image in you also, to perfect the image in others as well. And this is why discipleship must be relational. Um, Let me say something about parenting here really quickly. Here's a quote from James Edwards in one of the commentaries I consulted. Quote, in the biblical world, the right to be named or the right to name belong to a superior maker, master, parent who determine the essence and purpose of the thing named. So parents, um, if you're a parent, I'm just going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to make an assumption that you named your child. Is that probably a safe assumption? You named your child. And when you named your child, uh, in light of everything that we've been talking about here, you are exercising a measure of authority over your child. You guys see that? And I would suggest that that's really just the beginning of your role that you play in your child's life. And that it's connected. You and your responsibility of naming your child is actually connected to a deeper responsibility that you have to your children. And that is what James talks about here. I'm sorry, James Edwards. He talks about here that you determine the essence and the purpose of the thing named. Can you believe that? As a parent, you have that responsibility. Now, you may not, don't get me wrong, there are many things about your child that you do not have the power nor the responsibility to determine, like their personality or their temperament. You can't change that. I I tried that with my kids. It doesn't work. All right. So if you're a young parent, don't try to change your child's personality because that's just the way that it is. You can maybe curb it, but you cannot change that. You cannot change their temperament. So there are things about your children that you cannot change and you are not called to change. But here's one thing that you are called to change. Here's one thing that you are called to determine, I should say, is the essence of someone. And what can we say about the essence 
What does this mean to determine the essence of your child? And here's how I would describe it. Parents, you as a parent, you are called to determine or help your child to understand why they exist. And that is they exist to be in relationship with God and they exist to live to please God and to live for his kingdom. You can, you can set up your child in such a way, you can, you can determine their essence in such a way that they can understand that my purpose for existence is that I would know Christ and live for his glory and live for his pleasure. And really that's the essence, you know, and if you think about it, parenting, parents, are you training your children to be obedient to you? Do you train them to submit to your authority? Because there's a connection between their ability to submit to your authority and their ability to now surrender their lives to the work of Christ. You guys see that connection? When you train your children to be submissive to your leadership and to your authority, you are setting them up and you are training them to envision themselves as one who surrenders themselves to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You are molding their temperament so that they would be able to say, yes, Jesus, I want to live for you. It's not about what I can make of myself. It's about what you can make of me. And I surrender myself to you. And that's the heart of discipleship. That's the heart of the disciple. It's not the desire to make some, something of me. It's the desire to allow God to be made much of through me and allow him, allow him to, allow, uh, to, to use me however he wishes according to his purposes. So parenting can teach us actually a lot, all of us. It can teach us a lot about what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be a discipler. And really, if you think about parenting, it's one of the best avenues. It's one of the best ways that we're set up to actually mold people's lives and to invest into another life and to point them to Christ. And let me say one other thing. Since we're on the topic of parenting, I would say this anyway, but this is particularly relevant you recognize there's no guarantees when it comes to discipleship. What is the last thing that we read? It says that this list was compiled after it was known that Judas, Judas Iscariot would have betrayed Jesus. And I just love the fact that the Bible doesn't cover this with bleach. Do you guys realize that? It doesn't sanitize this out. It's writing the, this after the fact, and it, it brings up and it highlights this painful point, and that is G Judas do you see Jesus appointed Judas and Judas betrayed him? Do you guys notice this? So there's no, there's no scientific method. There's no surefire proof way of making sure that this is 100% guaranteed all the time. And that's true. I mean, if we think about that with parenting, that's, that's in a way that, that reminds us that we have a role to play, but we're not ultimately determinative about, about our kids. And, um, and I'm thankful that we see that there's a human level, there's a human element to the reality of making disciples. It's not a surefire thing. It's not a guarantee. Judas betrayed Jesus. So there's no guarantees. There are disappointments and heartaches, but it is worth it. When we think about, let me just wrap it up here. When he sends them out to preach, I just want to encourage you. You don't need to have a pulpit. You don't need to have a microphone. You don't need to stand up in front of crowds of people and preach sermons. I think what it is is spreading the message of Christ. And you can do that in a coffee shop. You can do that in your living room. However it looks, when you meet with your Bible study groups, when, it meet, when you meet with one-on-one -on -one discipleship, if you decide, hey, you know what? You want to read the Bible together? Do you want to invest into each other's lives? Do you want to ask ourselves hard questions about ourselves? That's discipleship, and that's preaching the gospel, and that's spreading the message of Christ. That's um, intending to bring yourself under, the, under conformity of, of, of the image of Christ. That's preaching the gospel. So yes, any, I think any way that we make known the message of Christ and spread that to other people qualifies as preaching. And we could say, which um, I wish we could have said more about, but to close here, let me just ask a couple of questions. In terms of being with Christ, how would you describe your relationship with others as a means of growing in Christ? If you honestly look at yourself and assess yourself, how would you answer that question? How would you describe your relationship with others as a means of growing in Christ? Do you solely think of uh, your growth in Christ as just your personal quiet time? Or do you see 
that um, you really need the body of Christ as well. You need somebody pressing into you. You need somebody that you can do life with that will help you as a means of growing in Christ. Um, second, communicating Christ. Do you have someone you are both investing into and someone that is investing into you? Do you have that? And what are you doing about it? And number three, standing against evil. Um, truly knowing Christ turns us into those who take action. So how are we taking action against evil? And how should GCF corporately take a stand against evil? I think that's something that we can ask and wrestle um, with as a church in the coming days and months. As we uh, gain a deeper sense of how God is shaping us and moving in our midst, I think uh, we can uh, ask that uh, of ourselves individually. We can ask that of ourselves corporately, how we're taking a stand against evil and how God is calling us to do that. Let me pray and we will um, we'll close up. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you, Lord God, for this people. I pray for them and I ask, Lord God, that you would move us into more meaningful relationships with one another. By your spirit, Lord God, I pray that you would cause us to be intentional about who we pursue and the kind of relationships we pursue. Lord, I pray that um, you would heal all of our hurts. We ask, Father, that you would um, create, recreate community that has been lost in this church. We look to you and ask, God, that you would be the rebuilder of that, the restorer of that. We pray, Lord God, that this would be a, a, just a vibrant church that is growing in your word and growing and doing life with one another, Lord. So we do give it to you and we pray, Lord God, that you will be exalted in our midst. Help us, Lord God, to take these truths. Help us, Father, to assess ourselves in light of them. May we find encouragement, Lord, um, and may we be challenged in your ways. Father, thank you for um, this worship service. Thank you, Lord God, for revealing the glory of Christ to us. And we pray, Father, that he would be exalted in our eyes and the weight of your glory would land upon our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.